Hello again, party people. Welcome to my third podcast. On this episode, I'll tell you about the time I came a cropper whilst uh, showing off at a DJ gig in front of an unknown kid who became one of the world's most celebrated superstar DJs. I'll talk about probably the most breathtaking thing I've ever seen at a live rock concert and the time I tried to describe what kind of music my band made uh, just at the moment when a doctor I was administering a very awkward medical procedure on my nether regions. I'll also be telling you how I came to write a song called The Earworm Song in the late 1990s. I'll be having a quick chat with you about the world of homeschooling. And as always, I'll be closing this episode with a track from a new unsigned band on this podcast. It's a turn of Manchester Five Piece and the name is Cabbage. Don't forget to check out the Spotify playlist, which comes with each episode. On there, you'll find some of the songs I'm chatting about, or songs by some of the artists uh, I'm chatting about, and even some songs that just come to mind when I'm telling the stories. My podcasts are brought to you by Distorted Productions, and big thanks once again to those lovely people at Red's True Barbecue in Manchester for helping us to get this together. Okay, let's crack on. Story time with Boone with Red's True Barbecue. So let me tell you about the Warehouse Project. It's now one of the UK's most successful nightclub brands. For 12 weeks or so every year, they set up shop in Manchester and the biggest names in the world of dance, mainly dance music, come along to party. Traditionally, the Warehouse Project operates from a a space or a venue which might not be used for anything else. And the work they've done over the last decade or so to rejuvenate some of Manchester's real estate has been immeasurable. They've done some great work. The first ever warehouse project happened in 2006 and it was a disused brewery in Manchester uh, which was awaiting demolition it was the iconic Boddington's brewery right next door to Strangeways Prison and they wanted me to do a late slot which I couldn't do because I had another booking somewhere else so they decided to flip-flop and the guy that was going to be on before me went on after me he was a, a relatively unknown chap from Scotland fairly new to the DJ and remixing scene just starting to make a name for himself and partway through my DJ set he arrives in the booth stage whatever you want to call it and I was probably doing a bit of the old, yeah, watch and learn, brother, watch and learn. You know what I mean? I shook his hand. I said, I'm Clint. You might have heard of my band in Sparrow Carpets. What's your name? And he says, my name's Adam, but I go out under a different name. I go out as Calvin, Calvin Harris. And I'm like, that. okay, mate, stand there, watch and learn, <laughs> probably. And the DJ booth at the first ever warehouse project was dead eye, right? I seem to remember it was built on top of a massive concrete plinth about eight foot high, so probably something that was an old base for some incredible piece of beer-making paraphernalia that had been moved, you know what I mean? So towards the end of my set, when I'm ready to get off, I turned to Adam, Calvin Harris, and said, this is my last tune, I'm getting off now, have a top night, yeah? And I hit the play button, tune starts, bowing slippy, and I remember I turned to him one more time and I said, yeah, mate, watch this. And I stage-dived onto the crowd backwards, looking this lad, Adam, Calvin, in the eye, laughing all the way down like that, at which point the crowd parted and because I was dropping from quite high up they didn't want to get hurt, you know what I mean, so they all moved and I landed flat on my back on this concrete floor like that fucking wounded I was <laughs> and I'm there like that, winded and people looking down at me, you alright Boone you alright Boone, I'm like, I'm fine I'm fine, I could hardly talk, I could hardly breathe and I got up I walked off to the dressing room, like, you know, as if everything was okay. <laughs> all right, Poon Army, Poon Army, they're all that, Poon Army, Poon Army. Got to the dressing room, I had a little cry, because oh, I was wrecking, man, I was wrecking. I couldn't breathe. I probably needed medical attention, but I had another gig to get to, so I got off anyway. But around the same time, 
right when this happened I'd been doing a lot of stage diving and crowd surfing at, at gigs to the point where my wife had made me promise to stop doing it because I kept coming home all dirty and, and bruised and that and this warehouse project gig coincided with my wife being pregnant with our second baby and it also coincided with us moving into a new house right and I was in the middle of that chaos you know moving van loads of gear up and down ladders emptying one loft filling another loft up pretty much all on my own you know we didn't have a lot of help really and I was having a tough week and Mrs Boom was as well, you know, she was pregnant and she felt sorry for me as well because she couldn't really help me that much. She didn't want to be lifting stuff up. But I was there when I had to show off to this Scottish kid that, that you know, was there, showing the ropes and all that, you know what I mean, what she learned. So when I came home that night, feeling even more achy and sore, you know, she naturally assumed it's because of all this grafting I've been doing, you know, moving house and that. I didn't tell her that I'd stage dive from eight foot onto a concrete floor backwards. And the sympathy I got from her over the next couple of days was unreal. It was amazing. I made the most of it. You know, like blokes do. Do you want me to run your bath? Yeah, please. I'll do the bath. My body's aching. Do you want me to make you some breakfast in bed? Yeah, please, love. Yeah, I don't want to get up yet. And then my brother-in-law, Ben, right? So it's my wife's younger brother. He comes round for a brew one day, a few days after. And he'd been at the warehouse project gig. And I'd not seen him since that night because I had to do one and get off. So I saw him in the middle of my gig and he waved and all that. So we're in the kitchen, right, having a brew. Me, Mrs. Boone and Ben. And he says, hey, you were funny the other night, man. Where I was project, diving into the crowd and they're all moving away like that out of your way. Did you not hurt yourself landing on your back like that? <laughs> well, wife went mad. I mean, I was in doghouse for a couple of weeks after that. I've not stage dived since, so I crowd surfed, because if I did, she'd, she'd just divorce me immediately next time. Anyway, blame it on Calvin Harris. That's what I say. That man's a bad influence. One of the most precious memories I've got of any gig that I've ever been to is from a, a gig in uh, June 1992. And it was you too. They played a venue in Manchester. It was known as GMEX back then. It's now called Manchester Central. And it's a very historic venue, Manchester's first massive venue, from what I can remember. It was an old derelict Victorian train station built in 1880 or thereabouts. And it was converted in the 1980s into this 11,000 capacity venue. And it was also used as an exhibition hall. So it's GMEX. And it was a venue where all the big Manchester bands played as as they be, or as we became household names back in the early 90s. Headlining GMEX was like that. It meant that you'd officially arrived, you know what I mean? You'd made it. Yeah, what are you doing? Like, headlining GMEX. Mm, that's good, isn't it? You made it. <laughs> and I saw, the, uh, I saw the Smiths play there once in July 1986. So it's towards the end of the Smiths' career, so I think. And three years earlier, when the building was still derelict, the Smiths had done a, a photo shoot in the same building and some of the most famous photographs of the Smiths were taken at that photo shoot in the derelict railway station. So this U2 gig in June 92, it was part of the band's Zoo TV tour, that's what the tour was named, and it was to support the album Act Tongue Baby. And it was memorable, the gig, for, for several reasons. One reason was that it was arguably the biggest band in the world at that moment in time. U2 had put together one of the greatest stage productions that had ever been seen, that had ever been taken out on the road. I think the road crew for that 
Zoo TV too. It was like nearly 200 people on the road doing the putting the show together. And the show was like a celebration of those early days of what we, we now call it the digital age. And the visuals were just revolutionary. There's like this mad mix of multimedia stuff going on with Bono tuning into like various TV channels from around the world via this live satellite system that they had in the venue with them. And Bono would be taking on the roles like different characters and that throughout the performance and all new for you too. You know, it's something they'd never really done before. They were, they were just like, just went from, you know, being this iconic stadium band to doing this this real groundbreaking uh, visual extravaganza and Bono would be phoning people up like live phone calls with politicians and celebrities and he'd be phoning White House and all that and then on top of that obviously you get some of the greatest songs ever written because it's you two and it was also as far as I know the first time a pop star had used a, a camcorder so just a domestic camcorder on stage and he was using it as part of the visual so he'd be running around like singing into the camera and sticking it in the edge's face and all that, you know, the, the edge would be like, all right. <laughs> but it's like no rock gig I'd ever been to. It was the nearest thing to complete sensory overload that, that I'd ever seen at a, a live music event. And the support bands were Kraftwerk and Public Enemy, which in itself made it a monumental occasion. And it was also memorable to me because the Inspirals had received a, a call from the U2 office the day before the gig. Bono's wife, Ali, had personally called to say that you two had uh, like us, the Inspirals, to accompany them to the Sellafield Nuclear Power Plant in Cumbria, right, <laughs> on the, up on the northwest coast. And it, this was going to, they were going to go up there immediately after the GMX concert. And the Manchester show had been branded as a, a stop Sellafield event. There'd been a lot of talk about the, the nuclear plant. They were looking at expanding it and building a new reactor, and a lot of people weren't happy, Bono and company included. Because Sellafield, it's only like 60 miles away from the, the Irish coast. And according to statistics, the, the, the liquid waste that gets pumped into the sea every day makes the Irish Sea the most radioactive sea in the world. Hence the obvious anxiety of U2 and the rest of Ireland, you know, about this proposed expansion. So U2 wanted to do a demonstration, get some publicity for the, the anti-nuclear brigade and and their involvement obviously had to be kept secret because if, if people knew that U2 were going to go up there and all that, they'd just been chaos, wouldn't it? So we were flattered to be asked and we accepted their invitation. Uh, we were going to jump on a bus and get up there with, with the band through the night and that I mean forget the dangers of nuclear power and all that but spending a night on U2's tour bus you know what I mean bring it on man bring it on so we were there yeah we'll do that so we went to the gig me a couple of lads out of the band Noel Gallagher who was the roadie at the time for the band totally thinking we were getting on a bus with U2 and heading north right after the gig and it all changed because someone someone let the cat out of the bag the press found out that U2 were planning this, this trip the authorities let it be known that you know the U2 entourage would be turned away at the nearest motorway exit or whatever you're not going to get anywhere near Sellafield boys forget it so before you two went on stage at the GMEX gig we got told that our services wouldn't be required but thanks all the same and you two still managed to pull off this brilliant stunt by they went up anyway and they approached the controversial nuclear power plant from the sea the four of them like dressed in these white overalls and protective face masks and huddled together in a little greenpeace inflatable dinghy or something and Rightfully so, you two did a lot of they did a lot to raise awareness for what was going on up there at that time. But to me, the gig there was something else happened, an incredibly special moment that happened about halfway through the set, and it's still the most perfect thing I've ever seen happen during a gig. The band had been doing a, a version of Lou Reed's satellite of love throughout this tour, where they get Lou Reed on screen in a, a pre-recorded video sort of thing. And Bono and the band would be playing along with it, sort of like a, a virtual duet, so Bono and Lou Reed would be harmonising together and all that. 
And the other thing the Zoo TV tour was famous for was its, its use of Trabant cars. So it's an extremely cheap automobile that had been built in Eastern Europe before the collapse of communism and the fell into the Berlin Wall. So the stage show included a dozen or so of these Trabant cars, all wildly decorated by various famous artists and that. And they were hung from the ceiling with lights mounted inside them and that smoke machines. Proper breathtaking thing to see. And halfway through the set, the band were on this uh, little satellite stage in the middle of the the crowd and I think that back then was revolutionary for a band to do that you know the little catwalk and a little stage in the middle of the crowd so in the middle of the audience doing a sort of like a busking set which is very trendy nowadays isn't it and one of these Trabant cars covered in mirrors gets lowered down right right above the little satellite stage just right above the band's heads and Bono introduces a song he said this one's a Lou Reed song so we all knew what's coming next they started to play Satellite of Love and Bono starts singing the first verse and he pushes his Trabant car into a, a gentle, slow spin and the car starts to rise like up into the, the, the roof. All the lights are out, a big spotlight comes on it and it's just like the most amazing giant mirror ball you've ever seen. It's, just, it's a car covered in mirrors and it's rotating and it's just like, you just goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps now thinking about that moment. It was absolutely like, breathtaking. And you're thinking there, that, that's just the most amazing thing I've ever seen. But what happened next was like this different voice comes on, second verse. And it's Lou Reed. And down the catwalk struts the godlike Lou Reed singing Satellite of Love with Bono right there in front of us in Manchester. People literally crying around us. They were so happy. And I'll tell you what, right, if, I, if I'd have died at that moment, I would have died the happiest man in the world. I watched it for a little while I like to watch things on TV Satellite of love Satellite of love Satellite of love Satellite of it's always a bit of a laughing matter in the Boone House when the Doors come up in conversation. And it comes up a lot because the Doors are one of my favourite bands ever. So I've got three little boys. Cassius is five, Hector's nine, Oscar's eleven. And they all find this story extremely funny. And so does my wife as well, sadly. A few years ago, I spent the entire Christmas and New Year period in hospital with a, a ruptured appendix and peritonitis. It was a very serious episode and it was one that apparently I was lucky to have survived it. And I was nursed back to health by... Our wonderful NHS, I was allowed to go home eventually. And a few months later, I started to get pains in my abdomen. So I went back to hospital for checkups and tests. And it turned out the pain was just the result of scar tissue forming. So nothing too serious and something which in time corrected itself. But during these tests, one afternoon, I was taken into a side room at the hospital where a male doctor explained that he was going to have to give me um, an intimate or slightly invasive examination right internal it was an internal you know what i'm saying without being too graphic it involved a rubber glove and a tub of vaseline right so i'm there on the bed right kecks off trying to look relaxed and doctor like, like doctors do he's just carrying on this dead normal and ordinary conversation about life in general you know what i mean just muttering away to himself why like that stood outside of me are you all right and i'm like yeah i'm fine a total stranger's about to stick his middle finger up me ass. what do you think so doctor's ill and he's, he's, he's at it. So what do you do for a living, Mr. Boone? You know, putting his glove on and that. And I'm like, I'm in a band, you know, music. I play keyboards and sing. Oh, really? He says, what, what are they called? You know, putting Vaseline on his finger and that. And I says, 
in spiral carpets. And he said, I've never heard of them. What kind of music is it? Standing there, foot at bed. And I said, it's, it's psychedelic music. He said, what do you mean psychedelic music? I said, well, just, this is just at the moment of impact. I said to him, we sound a lot like the doors. <laughs> the wife still tells that story and the kids love it. And it's a catchphrase in our house. Sound a lot like the doors. <laughs> I never, I don't even remember his name. Well, you wouldn't do, would you really? You wouldn't do. I, I never made a point of it. Well, it wouldn't be right, would it? You know, just, hey, mate, we should keep in touch. Let's swap numbers and that. Maybe get together sometime, go for a drink. You know what I mean? <laughs> when you're strange, faces come out of the rain. When you're strange, no one remembers your name. When you're strange, when you're strange, when you're strange. So on each episode of the podcast, I like to pick a particular song that I've written over the years and uh, tell you how it came about. Today I'm going to talk to you about a song called The Earworm Song, or to give it its full title, Do What You Do, open brackets, The Earworm Song, close brackets. In September of 1999, I was invited completely out of the blue to go on tour with the Clipburn Experience supporting Travis. So the gig was going to be, or the, the, the gigs were going to be in December uh, 99, two or three weeks or so. And the invitation came personally from Travis frontman Fran Ely. He sent me an email and I'd never had any contact with him before, just completely out of the blue. And it read something along the lines of, Dear Clint, my name's Fran. Your album, The Compact Guide to Pop Music and Space Shovel, has not been out of my CD player since it was released. We would be flattered if my band Travis could share the stage with your band on our UK tour in December. And I thought, is this a wind-up or what? And it wasn't. At the time, Travis were one of the most popular bands in the country. They'd had it singles throughout 99 with Writing to Reach You, Driftwood and Why Does It Always Rain On Me. They were the Coldplay of that era. They were huge. In fact, Coldplay frontman Chris Martin said in an interview about eight to nine years later, he said that without Travis, there would probably never have been Coldplay. That's how influential Travis were for that moment in time. And I was a massive fan of Travis's music. They'd first come to my attention one day earlier on in 99, when I came home and the bass player of the Clint Brown Experience, Stubbs, Richard Stubbs, was in my lounge playing a CD that he picked up and it was a band that I wasn't familiar with. And the track that was on at the time when I walked into my front room, was this incredibly beautiful piece of music about some bloke getting rained on all the time. And I'm like, sat there on the arm of my armchair, just remember just flopping down and just thinking, who's this singing in my front room? And I said, not, not only was the song so beautiful, but the fact that I didn't know who it was. And Stubbsy said, it's a band called Travis. And I'm like, what's this, call? what's this song called? He said, why does it always rain on me? And from that moment for the next few months, I followed this band's progress. I bought all the singles as they came out. Bought the previous records that they brought out. And then the new album, The Man Who. So when I got this email from Fran Ely, who, who I'd still never met or had any contact with, Travis were huge. They were like one of the biggest bands in the UK. And it was a complete no-brainer, you know, for me. I can't remember how, how I replied. I've probably still got it somewhere in my me, me archives. But it'd, be, it'd probably be worded something along the lines of, you know, too right, mate. Send me the dates. I'll rent a van from Salford Van Ayer and I'll see you at the first gig. You know what I mean? Absolutely, we're doing it. We're doing it. And the tour was just out of this world as an experience for the band, for the Clint Brown experience. We'd been busy gigging all over the place for a couple of years, but we'd not done anything in venues like the ones that Travis had taken us to. 
And I remember I'd lost my camcorder immediately before the tour started, just a few days before the tour started. I lost my camcorder at a gig somewhere and I was gutted and I couldn't afford a new one because financially I wasn't in a great place at the time. I'd been signing on for a year or so before before the band started and after the Inspirals had split and I was still getting back on my feet from that. The band weren't making any money. The band members in the Clintburn experience were doing it for nothing. And this Travis support slot, it actually felt like it might be a, a turning point that I and the band desperately needed. So I'd lost my camcorder, couldn't afford a new one, totally good. One night after we opened for Travis early in the tour, I got called up to the dressing room, to the Travis dressing room, and I thought, here we go, they're going to say something like, oh, you're playing too loud, or, you know, you're trying to steal the limelight. <laughs> anyway, so they sat me down in the dressing room, they gave me a box, and they said, this is for you, Clint, and, and I opened it up, and it was a brand new, top-of-the-range Sony camcorder, like 1,500 quid's worth at the time it was. And I was gobsmacked. It was just another brilliant display of the band's kindness and generosity. And me and Fran became good friends. We bonded over an appreciation of each other's songwriting. He, he loved my This Is How It Feels song, and I loved his Why Does It Always Rain On Me. And he told me about a word which is really popular in the German language. His wife, Nora, is German. So he, 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 they live in Berlin now. But he said there's this word in the German vocabulary, and they don't really have it in Britain, but... The word is, the English translation is earworm. And he said, Clint, I love your songs, man. He said, they're all earworms. And the word earworm just stuck with me. So when I started writing my next bunch of songs, I thought I'm going to write a song about me and Fran's friendship and decided it should be called the earworm song. Anyway, I wrote the first verse from my point of view as if I'm singing to Fran. And the second verse from Fran's point of view as if he's singing to me. And originally I'd intended to do all the lead vocal myself, just like a conventional sort of arrangement. But as the song developed, the idea of Fran singing some of it started to come into my head and I phoned him up, I phoned Fran up and I said, I'm going to play this song and I played him down the phone. And he loved it and I said to him, how about you sing with me on it, sing your bits? And he said, yeah man, let's do it. So I packed all my recorded equipment up into the car, drove to London, set the gear up in Fran's front room and we recorded the vocals down there. It was Mother's Day in the year 2000, right? In, and we spent the afternoon in his lounge recording the, these beautiful vocals that he did. And there's actually a lovely photograph of me and Fran at work that day working on this song taken by his wife, Nora. She is a photographer. And I wanted the song to sound like a classic 1960s duet. And I think it came out perfectly. It, there's a big Beatles-style ending on it as well, which, if I remember correctly, I don't think Fran was convinced about the ending of it, but we did it anyway. And I was quite sad soon after that when I heard that Travis were stepping out of the spotlight for a while so just to get on with family life and that and it's quite a bold move that because they, they could have remained at the top of the game for decades probably but they stepped out and I admire for that because I believe it's important sometimes that when kids arrive in your life that you need to readdress the balance between your career and your family time especially if your career involves you being away for months on end which it did they were going all around the world you know what I mean so they did that Fran and Travis took a break they are well and truly back in action now, making wonderful music again. And I will love them forever. Beautiful songs and beautiful people. And thank you to Fran Ely for helping me to make the Earworm song. To me too. Oh, 
Nice. That is the Clint Boone Experience featuring Fran Healy of Travis with a little song called Do What You Do, the Earworm song. And on the phone, I've got, live from a rehearsal studio down in London, Mr. Fran Healy. How are you doing, brother? Ah, how are you? Hey, I'm good, mate. So you guys are rehearsing to go and do some gigs, aren't you? Just, uh, is that right? You're struggling to remember some of the songs? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're just working through songs of the record and trying to... Like, what were we playing there? <laughs> <laughs> is it new music or old music from? It's new music. Yeah, we know the old music is easy. It's like falling off a bike. But new stuff is like when you go in a studio and you're, when you're recording and then, you, you know, the, the vibes and you've got to come out and you're like, what, how the hell did I get that sound? <laughs> where did that come from? That happens to me a lot. Every time we go out on the road, I have to do that. I have to start phoning up... Um people that I've worked with in the studio to try and remember how we did things but yeah it's all all uh, it's worth the effort and it's so you've got a new album coming out in your April yes in the April have you just got like two or three gigs is that all you're doing or have you got another tour coming up yeah there'll be a tour we're gonna we're doing the you know the world tour type of thing but we're I don't know when and I don't know all I know so far as you know how these things are the band's the last people to know <laughs> then one day you look and suddenly your calendar's and you're like, oh no, God! Yeah. Here it is. I was thinking about this day. I was thinking this day would come. So yeah, I mean, we're playing in um, Northampton, and then we're doing a sort of two gigs in uh, the Lexington in London next week. Yeah, and that's that's the start. Right. That's the beginning. I was saying before, just uh, just before I got you on the phone, I was saying that I really admired the way that you lot, right at your peak pretty much, you, you announced you were stepping out of it, you were going to step out of it for just to, to get your lives back on track, to do all the domestic stuff, to have kids and all that, and I really admired it, because a lot of mm. bands don't do that, a lot of bands won't do it at the peak, they'll wait till things are going a bit shit, and then they'll drop out and that, but you did it right at your peak, didn't you, and I, I admire you for it. That's oh, cool, man, thanks, well, you know, I just, you've toured with us, you know, we're like, I don't, I think that you've got rock widows and rock orphans, <laughs> yeah. and, and uh, and uh, and I don't know. I, I, I just coming from a a family where I didn't have a dad. Yeah. And then you have a kid. You're like, you know, fuck that. You know, I I want to be there for him. I want to be like a dad. And also as well, you know, it was, it was around the time that you you had that mental neck break accident. That's right. The you know class classic rock and roll um, drummer pool accident and then. Um, Luckily, survived it, yeah. and it, and it made us stop in our tracks, and that was the moment where we were like, "No, this is just mental." Fuck that. Yeah, it puts things in perspective. How, how old is your rock orphan now, little Clay? Is he ten now or eleven? <laughs> he's 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 nine. He's a nine, right? Okay. You've got. I mean, you've got. You've got, you've got like twenty-five kids now. Twenty-six. You? Twenty-six children now. My <laughs> 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 twenty-six different oh. mothers. <laughs> no. Wow, no, I've got. I've got man. five. I've got five. Me and my wife have got three little boys, and it's funny actually because literally in the last hour, I've just got back from Johnny Roadhouse, which is a big Manchester uh, music shop, and my nine-year-old and my eleven-year-old boys, Hector and Oscar, both decided that now they want to start a band. So I've just been and bought them a, a lead guitar, a bass guitar, two amps. I've got the straps. I've got the stands. I've got a full kit now. They can start a band proper. So that's a, it's a wow. nice, nice moment in any father's life that when that happens, isn't it? Do they have a name yet? Do they no. have a, a, a band name? No, no band name yet, but I'm sure they'll come up with something in time. No rush, no rush. So I've been talking about the Earworm song, Fran, and was just wondering if you've got some memories of, of that time. Can you still remember it? Of course, of 
course, man. Sitting in the little tiny house that we lived in, Trouch End. Yeah. Of course, man. It was. It was. It came at a time when our band really needed something to give us a leg up because we'd had this horrific road crash earlier that year, and you guys taking us on the road was just a nice, uh, just a nice uh, step up, really, for for the next stage. So it, it meant a lot to us to do it. And uh, and the earworm song still sounds as good now as it did back then. I just listened to it before; it just sounds amazing. So I'm still dead proud of it. I'm still dead grateful that you did it. Well, I was going to say, you know, you, you coming down and it's nice you say that. But for me, Clint, what you forget is that you were in my and before our band got a deal when I was kind of before you even went to art school. You, the Inspirals were fucking massive to, to us, me and everyone. You know, we'd go up to level eight, Strathclyde Uni, we'd nip in underage. Yeah. And we'd and that was that was the you know, your music was, was the soundtrack to my my life. And and then when you came out with the with the band and and you know, you said, Okay, we'll come on the road with you guys but it was like it was a huge deal, you know, it's kinda like you're you're like a hero, so it's sort of it's funny, isn't it? It kind of goes both ways a, a little bit, and I think more to, for for me, it, it was like I, I I'm pretty much got got the the best deal ever because you know you were my one of my one of these guys you saw in magazines and read about and knew about you. And, that's nice. That's nice of you to say that from. Nice of you to say. I'd forgotten about that first bit before we met, but yeah, there's all that Inspiral stuff as well. What about the, uh, I've got to ask you this, about the, the death of David Bowie, because you were based in Berlin now, aren't you? You live in Berlin. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I'm guessing that the, his death probably resonated quite profoundly around Berlin, as it did in London and the rest of the world, because he based himself there for some of his uh, his best work, didn't he, in the late 70s. What was the feeling like in Berlin two weeks ago when he died? Well, the weird thing was I was in New York right. when it happened, and I lived around the corner from him, like, in New York. So I went round and I got some flowers and I put them on his, at his building. Mm-hmm. And then after, a couple of days later, I went back to Berlin and my room where I write, my writing room, uh, is it Hansa? Oh, no is way. That, is, is, is in Hansa, like, it's, 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 in the, it's in where the where he wrote Heroes and where he um, recorded all those amazing records. And outside of it was uh, like a, a shrine to, to Bowie. And um, and as an artist, I'm guessing he influenced you as much as the rest of us of that generation. Totally, totally. He's, he's like, but for me, because I grew up in the 80s, it was dancing in the streets and it was loving the alien and it was blue jeans and it was yeah. let's dance and it was all of that kind of stuff. Incredible. It was chart music. I didn't, I, I was always like a radio kid. I just listened to the radio. I didn't have records. Yeah. No big brothers, no dad to sort of extol, you know, the, the virtues of 70s prog rock or whatever. <laughs> I was just, I was just, listening to radio and, and Bowie was all over it in the 80s. You know what you were? You, you were a little Glaswegian blank canvas, weren't you? Totally. And then I went to art school and met Dougie and Dougie's a, a huge Bowie fan because of his sisters and they, uh, his, he just like turned me on to all the, the early Bowie stuff, which I sort of knew about, but then the whole thing opened up to me. Sad days, but uh, what an amazing legacy he's left us all, all those beautiful records to enjoy for the rest of our time. Listen, Fran, I've got to ask you this. How's your lovely wife, Nora, doing? She's brilliant, Clint. She's great. Everyone's great. It's really nice. We're, we have just 
a cool, everything's really cool, really laid back. Good. It's all, it's all, it's all great. I'll send, I'll pass on your regards. Yeah, do that. Give him a love. It's been a long time, but um, yeah, we still think about you, so... Good luck with the new albums. All everything at once. Twenty ninth of April. Yeah, it's cool, man. We can't wait to get out. Like we're, like I said, we're we're learning the songs and bit by bit they're sounding like it's going to sound great Brilliant. <laughs> when we when we take it on the road. Right, well, I can't wait to hear it, and uh, hopefully I get to see it at some point soon on your travels, man. Cool, Clint. Right, Frank, give me give me luck to the boys, yeah. Will do, man. Thanks a lot. Take care. See you later, man. Bye, bye. Almost three years ago, me and my wife Charlie started homeschooling our three little boys and we chose this route for several reasons. We'd thought about it for years because it totally fits in with our beliefs on how children can still be raised as intelligent, caring and confident people outside of the education system. Tragically, we lost our fourth child, a baby girl called Luna Bliss, in April of 2012. She was born three months prematurely. She only lived for 34 days. And it took around a year or more for us to get our lives back on track after losing Luna. You, you don't really recover from something like that. You just learn to accept it, take it on board, live with it and get on. And you also try to find whatever little pieces of positivity that might be there in that experience. And for us, one of those little blessings that came of that was that we found ourselves in a position where we were able to finally try homeschooling our kids. My work schedule meant that we were able to get by on the income I was making as a musician, a DJ, radio presenter, whatever. And it also meant that I was home for quite a big part of the day as well. And when my wife got back on her feet, we just felt it was the perfect time to try homeschooling. More than ever, we wanted to spend every minute possible with our kids that's where you just don't want them out of your sight. You know, just we want to be with them day in, day out. Unfortunately, England is one of the most liberal countries in the world when it comes to homeschooling. In some countries, it's against the law. You can't do it. You can't take your kids out of school. There is a procedure you need to follow. You can't just you can't just pick your kids up from school at the end of a bad day and give the headmaster the Vs as you leave through the school gate saying, yeah, mate, see you later, do one, I'll teach you myself. It's not that easy. It's not like that. We found that our local council were very supportive of our decision. They recommended a lot of websites that we could use to get whatever educational material we might need. And they put us in touch with other OMED families or other homeschool families in the region. And one of the first things we learned is that in England, you don't have to follow the national curriculum. A lot of people ask me, how oh, do you do, you know, do you do geography, do you do history? You don't need to do any of the academic subjects if you don't want. As long as you're helping your children to progress in a positive way in their environment, that's all you're required to do. So basically in this country, the, the, the strap line is something along the lines of school isn't compulsory, but education is. Now, some homeschool parents follow a particular structure that suits them or their child. Others use no structure whatsoever. It's all simply following the idea that kids will learn by being around the parents and watching what the parents do. Sort of learning from living, if you like. Now, we're somewhere in between. We've been using a tutor to teach our boys maths and English uh, for a little while, but... That's the only real academic stuff that we've done. Our children spend a lot of time going to museums and galleries and libraries and they spend a lot of time meeting up with other homeschool kids as well. So like most kids, they spend a lot of time skating and gaming and doing a lot of recreational stuff as well. And it's been wonderful seeing them develop over the last three years. It feels 100% 
that our decision was the right one for our family. It doesn't suit everybody. Not everybody's in a position to even try it because of, of work and careers. And we do count ourselves very fortunate that we are in a position where we can do it. And as with some of our other views as well, which I've chatted about in the previous podcast, it's not us being anti-establishment by any means. It's just us exploring other ways, natural ways of, of raising our kids. I had a very traditional Catholic education me through the 60s and 70s, went to grammar school for five years and an all-boys grammar school. I did okay at school, but I didn't enjoy it. And it was only in 1976 when I was an art student and the punk rock explosion happened that I really, to this day, think my real education started then. You know, seeing that there are other ways of doing things, there's ways of doing things yourself, not relying on other people, not always relying on the establishment and not always doing what society expects you to do. We're not outlaws, we're just, I don't know, hippies, I suppose, aren't we? And punks. <laughs> but it remains to be seen how our children will turn out. But right now, they're five, nine and 11, and I already feel that they're benefiting totally from the way we live and the fact that they are all-med kids. Okay, that's it for now. Thank you very much for downloading this. Don't forget, if you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to it and it'll automatically drop into your ears every week. <laughs> Scary thought. If you get a minute, leave us some feedback to it. All helps spread the word. I like to close every episode of the podcast with a track from an unsigned band or artist. This time it's a five-piece band from Manchester called Cabbage. <laughs> Good name, innit? Can you imagine when they do the stadiums? Ladies and gentlemen, Cabbage! I told them to send me a few words describing themselves and they came back with this. Serving up an idiosyncratic satire-based attack in the form of discordant post-punk. And you know what? It's bang on that. Their words, not mine, but a perfect way to describe the music of Cabbage. It is brilliant what you're about to hear. Find them on SoundCloud as Cabbage Band and on Facebook as well. I'll be back soon with episode four. Thanks again. And for now, I'll leave you with this excellent track from Cabbage. It's a track called Kevin. Storytime with Boone with Red's True Barbecue. Subscribe now on iTunes.